welcome to Preflections, a series of conversations brought to you by Pantopicon, in which we reflect upon present-day society and peer through its cracks in anticipation of possible worlds to come. Before we start this podcast, we have a small request. If you appreciate our conversations and do not want to miss new episodes, we would love it if you would subscribe via Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any other place you get your podcast from. And leave us your scores or reviews. It means a lot to us and we'd love to hear from you. Of course, you can also get in touch more directly via Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram. This week I sat down with biologist, engineer, artist, or in his own words, simply explorer and futurist, Angelo Vermeulen. Driven by his boundless curiosity, wonder and passion, we jump from small-scale biological organisms to interstellar space travel and back. From the first seconds of the conversation, you'll immediately notice why Angelo stands out in today's landscape of people engaged in both art and science at an international scale. a kind personality, an open but sharp and critical mind, but above all, eloquence and elegance in explaining and engaging others in his ideas. A central notion in his discourse, which obviously resonates strongly with me and our team at Pantopicon, is how desperately we are in need of diversifying our futures. Without further ado, Angelo Vermeulen. Enjoy. Angelo. Welcome to Perflections. Hi, good to see you again. Angelo, my, my guess is that different audiences know you in different ways. I mean, as a scientist, as a biologist, as, a, as an artist, as a, a spaceman, I would say, uh, as a TED fellow, a tech pioneer. Um, considering those, those various angles... Um, Time-wise, it might be a risky question to ask, but could you tell me, could you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and and your journey? Yeah, well, um, I, I wouldn't say there is like one single thread that connects everything that I do. There's really a series of interests that I've been um, developing over the past two years. I I actually, if I would have to present myself really in a very compact way, I would say that I'm an explorer and a futurist. I think those are really uh, the key aspects of what I do. And I work in, in different fields, as you said. I work in art, design, science, and engineering, but it's always from that same perspective, exploring and thinking about the future. And I'm, I'm particularly interested in um, mankind's position in, in the natural world. That's something that always has been interesting uh, to me, and, and our the position of our civilization in history. These are really, That's really the big picture interest of me. And my, my interest in space, for example, fits in there. So I'm not just interested in space exploration as such. It's really part of a much larger interest. Um, but I have more specific interests as well, of course. And, and I think one of the things that often comes back in, in everything that I do is a fascination for emergence and self-organization. I'm a biologist, a developmental biologist and an ecologist. It's already in there. But also in the artworks that I do, we often work with uh, a co-creation approach. It's the same interest in emergence that is present in those art projects. And then secondly, uh, when I'm talking about a bit more specific interests, is that I'm, I'm really fascinated by transdisciplinary thinking. Um, and as I just said, co-creation. And the interest is really from um, an interest in um, collective intelligence. 
how to maximize collective intelligence and how to use that to to rewire how we think about the future. I think that is really uh, a kind of a good overview of, of what I do. How did how did that start? Did it start at at a, at a young age, or was that something that developed as you were were studying as a as a biologist, or was it something that that you would say goes deeper than that? It was always there. So when I was a kid, I was I was always walking in um, in the fields and exploring, and you know I, I had my own small lab at home with a microscope and all kinds of tools. Uh, I was always really fascinated by uh, biology. So I knew from a very early age, I knew I was going to be a biologist. But I was also really interested in space exploration, technology, history. Um, it's always been there. But of course, the way I'm framing it now, when I'm talking about my interest in emergence and self-organization and, and transdisciplinary thinking, this framing is, of course, a relatively recent way of framing my interests. So and it helps to to develop yourself. So I would say yes, those interests have been there all the always. And uh, during I think during my education, I really took a deliberate choice to start uh, exploring things in parallel. At a certain point, I started a PhD in biology, but had this huge interest in contemporary art and photography. And photography, so I decided to go to art school, like a, an evening and weekend program, and I, I basically combined science and art within my, my, my weekly practice. Now that you mention it, years ago when I met uh, David Edwards, who was at, at Harvard University, we, we talked about art and science and how, how naturally some, some people moved from one area into the other and, and, and back, while for other it continued to feel like a, I should you say, a, a, a blasphemous crossing of boundaries, some, some treacherous uh, terrain. But uh, for the former, he would call it art science, one word like a continuum. Is that what it's like for you as well? No, not at all. It's um, when I think about, first of all, I'm, I'm not really interested in art science. I mean, it's too limited for me. Um, like what, like I said before, I'm working in, in four fields, which have pretty distinct characteristics. And of course, there's overlap. Mm -hmm. The boundaries are blurry or porous. Um, depends on the way you want to look at it. But I'm working in art, design, science, engineering. And the thing is, I'm much more interested in, tran in a transdisciplinary approach. This doesn't mean that I don't, um, how to put it, um, when, you're, when you're really thinking about transdisciplinary working, it's not like you're neglecting or ignoring um, the fact that there are specific fields. Of course not. But you're creating a new zone, a new area, usually with other people, um, in which you lower those boundaries. And this means that it's much more about um, collaborating with each other in a quite in a, in a bit of a different way. It means that you're inviting people to contribute to specific domains, even though they're not specialists. I think that's really at the core of that kind of practice. Um, and this is what happens a lot as a kind of psychological and social thing. When you bring different disciplines together, people are very territorial about what they, what they represent, what they studied, what they accomplished in civil engineering or in math or in, in, in biology. And so, and when you create a culture within a group where you can lower those boundaries and a biologist is allowed to add to the conversation of the civil engineers and the other way around. And a programmer can start thinking about building an ecosystem together with a, with a biologist because it's a personal interest of that person. Then 
then an interesting thing happens because you're really tapping into that into into the diversity of interests of individual people and you're boosting that collective intelligence that that just generates a completely different uh, creative field so for me art science within that what i just described is just too too narrow i mean this is not what it's what it's all about um, the interesting thing is transdisciplinarity is really relating is is you have to look at it as being in relation to the original disciplines that have been that have been that are coming together um, and what typically happens or what typically happens in our transdisciplinary approach for example what i'm doing at Delft university of technology i'm working on advanced concepts for interstellar exploration but from a very explicit trans transdisciplinary approach um, we still produce scientific papers and we produce artworks that are exhibited in museums and, 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 and art festivals. Um, so there is, a, there is a kind of movement between the area that you create in which all these different domains are working with each other, bouncing off each other, interacting with each other, cross-fertilizing each other, and then output that sometimes steps back into more or more typical, more classic disciplines. And that movement is, is I think, is, is really interesting. And um, so for me, art and science, actually, I know there, when I'm talking about art and science, um, I know there's a lot of interest to look at them as a continuum or as, as essentially very similar. I'm mm -hmm. much more interested in the differences. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, there really are radical differences between the two. And it's not to create some sort of opposition. I'm, I'm not interested in, 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 in generating opposition and tensions, but um, because they really represent different sensitivities and different ways of looking at the world. And because they're different, it's so crucial to put them together. So that, that's way more interesting for me because you get a more holistic perspective instead of just mm -hmm. trying to, 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 to make them more similar. And I can yeah. talk about some of the differences that, I, that I've... Um, uh, that I personally believe are crucial, but I'm not sure if mm -hmm. that's really part of the question. Yeah, sure, sure, go ahead. Um, I think, of course, one of the really crucial uh, differences, and, and sometimes it's, it's, it's a, a bit forgotten, is there is really a radically different underlying worldview. If you talk to a practicing scientist and you, you, you kind of start gauging what they really believe in, it often boils down to gradually uncovering truth, gradually uncovering a full insight into the world. You know, we're, we're, we're getting closer. We've been doing this for centuries and gradually we're getting closer and closer to understanding the human brain, for example. We're almost there. A little more, give us a little more funding, give us a little more computing power and we're, we're going to get there. Um, the same thing with the theoretical physics, you know. Yeah, all the models from the past were wrong, but, you know, we're really close to finally cracking it. <laughs> so this this idea of getting closer and closer to the truth is, and it's it's I'm I'm a, I'm a I've been a practicing scientist as well, and now I'm an engineering researcher. So I know this feeling, and I know this 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 belief, this ideology. I've I've, I've also experienced it. Um, as artists, um, you're working very differently. You're not really interested in trying to grasp the entire world. You're I think what interests me in art in really powerful art, is the un unspeakable. What you cannot put into any words. What's, what's in between all the frameworks and all the models. What, you know, what, what always falls in between the cracks. Um, also, the, the, the impossibility of grasping 
the notion of reality as a, as a mathematical thing that as a mathematical equation that needs to be found you know because as soon as you 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 get closer to the so-called full insight that actual horizon of full comprehension moves away again and it keeps moving away you never get there mm-hmm. and it's this 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 and this it's an is asymptotic this. relationship almost huh? yes exactly yeah. and i think that this is where art resides it's in this eternal impossibility of grasping everything um, through all these mechanisms or, or all these uh, approaches that, that science typically uh, embody, uh, uh, represents. And of course, we know this. I mean, this is for most people, this is the classic distinction between art and science. But I'm quite surprised when people bring up that art and science are so similar that they kind of, you know, they just uh, don't talk about it anymore. And I'm like, well, let's not forget this. You know, this is really a key, a key component of the the relationship between those two. And let's let's keep keep that in in mind. Now, another another one is that um, is is dealing with uh, self reflect uh, self reflection. Um, art is really, and especially the arts model that we're currently using, which is basically the the avant garde arts model. I mean, that's that's the model we're we're not making art like. 500 years ago, um, have a very particular way of looking at art and embracing art. Um, and here, this idea is really important to constantly reflect on your practice, on the history of art, on 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 the institutional aspects of art, etc., to renew the field of the arts. I mean, that's inherently a key component of the arts. I mean, if you're not doing that, you're just not a, a, an interesting contemporary artist. Um, this is very different than science. In science, it's most scientists, of course, they're perfectly capable of this. Of course, they're smart people. Um, but it's not part of their daily practice. It's not like they go to the lab and they have this whole exposure on a meta level, what it means to be in a lab and the social construct that is that is also part of lab activities, for example. Um, and it's, it's just simply not there. I mean, if you engage with them in a reflection on science, they might be open to it, but it's not part of daily practice. So I think this is a real, a big, big difference. And then the last one, I think, the last key difference that I find very interesting is um, the fact that, what, like I said before, uh, the arts model that we're using now is an avant-garde model. So it's constantly um, questioning and, and, and turning conventions upside down each time over and over again. And in science, yes, you will question a scientific model, because that's that's how science evolves. But there is this really key uh, central paradigm in science. There's a particular methodology that everybody uses, and it's all built, the whole scientific universe is built around statistics. And this is what, you, you will not be able to publish a paper without abiding by the statistics rules. So there is this core key component. And that doesn't, in art, it's not, it's not there is nothing like that. And so, being constrained by statistics and the rules and the, you know of statistics to practice science or to practice art and to just turn everything upside down over and over again—I mean, that's what you try to do. It's not all—it's it's not so easy. Um, I think it's a complete different way of, of of positioning yourself in the world. Do you think that that consciously dealing with with both makes you? Um, I mean, for example, working in art doesn't make you a better scientist uh, as as you're doing it, and and vice versa. Do you think that it it adds to the um, the depth of your work and the, and the, and the insights that you generate? I would put it more generally. I would put it more like um, 
developing yourself along your different lines of interests makes you a stronger person in one particular field. So if you're a, a scientist and you do have an interest in some artistic fields, developing those skills and interests will definitely impact your overall creativity. Hmm. Um, but if you're a scientist and you're strictly interested in just a few scientific domains, it, it, you can be a terrific scientist as well. It's all about how our educational and professional system works and how we build identity and how I always use that example that, I mean, so unconsciously, lots of us are doing this. You see a, a young kid, uh, four or five year old, and so many people will walk up to the kid and will be like, so what do you want to be later? And already, already in that particular question, a choice has to be made. It's monodisciplinary. You have to choose. Mm -hmm. You can be a jet, a jet fighter pilot or an astronaut or a biologist or an artist but, or a dancer, but right there, the, the child has to make a choice and has to choose the most favorite thing. And this is not necessarily how you have to develop yourself, but our whole culture is built around this idea of, of finding your strongest interests, your biggest talent, and then developing yourself along that, those lines and then fitting mm -hmm. into, the, in, in, into society. And that's a little unfortunate. But the, the funny thing is, though, that if you look back in, in history, some of the figures um, which both scientists as well as artists sometimes refer and, and relate to um, uh, actually were very active in, in both areas, um, explicitly so. I mean, just a, one example I think that comes to mind also when looking at your work again um, was uh, the biography that uh, my wife and I were reading over the, the holidays by um, a biography of, uh, of Alexander von Humboldt, for example. You see that there is such an affinity uh, with such a wide variety of areas. It's only because he had those different languages, those different ways of looking at things that he could combine them into new insights. And that becomes very clear, in when, especially when you read a biography and not just a publication of the insights generated, whether that's in the scientific or the artistic discipline. Um, so it all comes together in, in that person. What are some of your um, great examples when you, uh, when you look at the position you're in now and how others dealt with that in the past? Oh, I'm, I'm not really using that many. I mean, it's not like I'm, I'm using those examples to guide my own life, but I actually saw an exhibition uh, of the Von Humboldt brothers, um, which gives an overview of, of their whole life and work. And it's, it is impressive, I mean, what they, all, what they put together. Um, and you can really exactly, it's, it's basically, I can only confirm what you just said. It's because they were in, in connect, they were connected to different fields that they could combine it into, into new ideas. But that's something that happens throughout, throughout the whole of history. Um, I must say recently I've been, um, watching a series that actually one of my, one of my friends recommended to me, it's called Connections and it's, um, a series that started in the 70s, which, which was created by James Burke. And it basically gives you an, an, an overview of the history of technology and how we're, and, and how completely, how things are connected in a way that you would have never imagined them throughout history, how one thing led to another. And I must say, I find this kind of worldview, I find it tremendously, uh, tremendously fascinating. So. Right now I'm watching that series and I'm like, my God, this perspective on human civilization is completely, it's so inspiring. 
Um, and at the same time, I'm listening a lot recently to my favorite podcast, which is uh, 99% Invisible, which is a little similar. It, it takes uh, unassuming design uh, objects or, 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 or things, uh, components of, of the world around us and dive deep into them. And, and, and you get this completely different perspective. And I think so much more than particular historical figures that I'm inspired by, I'm much more inspired by these kind of, of, of um, uh, ways of approaching uh, hist history and, and how things are related. Coming back to, to Van Humboldt as an example, I would say there's, um, in a way, a, a similarity between um, the, the effect that, that he had on, on, on many fields, I would say, through his research and, and, and what you're doing. In a way that's, um, your work seems to breathe almost the overview effect, huh? to put it in terms of the, the Apollo astronauts when they first saw the, the blue marble, um, in the sense that there's a deep connection between looking at things from the outside and being part of them at the, at the same time. Huh? You look from yeah. space, um, uh, but at the same time, there's this deep respect and, and fascination for the the complexities of our humble little but uh, fascinating Earth, I would say, or or Pachamama or Gaia, whatever you want to call it. Um, would you say that that's a, a thread in your work as well? That you try to to look from the extremes in order to to uh, to, to gain new insights, or is it just by coincidence that you end up in in such in those two uh, two areas? Yeah, it's, it, my, my scientific career really developed itself almost um, along some very archi archetypal lines. My first PhD research was in um, the top was on the topic of deformities of the teeth of larvae of non-biting midges. I often start my I often I often start my talks like this. People who have seen my talks, they know that I, that is kind of my opening <laughs> my opening sentence of my talks, and everybody's like, "What? Why would you look at deformities of teeth of larvae of non-biting midges? What the hell?" Um, the thing is, um, these larvae they live in sediments of streams and rivers, and when these ecosystems are polluted, their teeth deform. So you can use it as an indicator of pollution. It's called biomonitoring. Um, and then gradually over the years, I actually developed myself uh, much more as a space researcher, which I'm doing now at Delft University of Technology. Um, I'm working on, adva on advanced concepts for, for interstellar exploration. So I literally made a, a, a move from looking at the world through a microscope to designing concepts for starships. So it's this massive, uh, but I'm still interested in both. It's definitely not that I moved away from one to the other. And I kind of uh, this is really what I'm very fast, but I'm very much fascinated by. It's this um, the larger perspective of things, mm. and this is really on a, on a spatial perspective, like what I just said, from the microscope all the way to these large uh, structures that I'm designing with a whole team at Delft University of Technology to bring mankind deeper into space, um, but also historically. Um, I am really fascinated by history. I read a lot of history. Um, I watch a lot of uh, things uh, dealing with history and it's just to understand, I mean, you, you can only be a proper futurist if you understand the mechanisms of the past and that's how you can extrapolate towards the future. So in order to work, to design uh, things like, like starships, like future, future large-scale structures in space where mankind will live, this is, it's almost like reinventing society. Um, it is really useful to look at history and to try and learn lessons from that that you can implement in, in, in such structures. Well, I think the issue of scale, it, for me, to me at least, it, it resonates strongly because um, uh, 
I mean, at a time when I you mentioned the the value of history and and uh, uh, those those different ways of looking at things, um, when I was still a researcher at the McLuhan Institute at the University of Maastricht uh, about twenty years ago, um, I was looking into this uh, shift from a more from the traditional mechanistic worldview that we've mo I mean for centuries have have been in to uh, to a more organic one or more biology or nature inspired view that that we see happening now. I mean, a lot of the things that evolved in that worldview, at first they were metaphor, but soon you would discover through science that there's actually a much deeper connection. Uh, and it seems like we're on a on a on a journey, uh, as, as humankind I would say, to uh, to uh, to uncover more and more of that. So it's, I would say it's it's not just a. Um, a metaphor, it's not biology as a blueprint for human creation, but it's perhaps also something at a more philosophical level. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, looking at things from a, from a larger scale, uh, shifting between scales, it, it, it gives you a lot of, uh, of different, uh, different insights. Mm -hmm. um, the, the same, I would say, almost goes for um, your direct connection almost between your, your space-related research and biology, if we look at how many uh, technologies that were developed for, for use in space afterwards found civil applications later on, or the insights that were generated by means of them would, would find civil applications uh, that everybody uses nowadays. I mean, most people are not aware of it, how much of all that investment that goes into space-related research comes back to you at a certain point. Um, and there seems to be this renewed interest now in space. Of course, we have the the billionaire space rage with Musk and and, and Jeff Bezos and and others, um, reigniting the the public imagination. I would say, uh, mm -hmm. in a way, I'm not saying that it it ever went away, but I mean, we all know about funding issues that were there, etc. So uh, the attention of the of the world and and the big powers was was elsewhere. But now it seems that we have. Um, we're back on a, on a course that that actually nurtures that uh, that hunger for knowledge uh, beyond um, beyond our planet. Um, what do you think are some of the uh, the promises of what you're looking, for example, now into to deep interstellar uh, space travel? What are th some of the the promises that you feel that are that we might deduce from from uh, from that research or from um, from those investments in a longer term that might come back to us at, at Earth. I mean, you've mentioned that you've been working on uh, food systems for interstellar travel, for example. Uh, I can imagine that that there's fascinating work that flows back to to much more everyday applications as well. It's not taking what we know here and taking it into space, but it's also about what we discover in space and bringing it back home. How do you look at that, uh, that Angela? I think it's important to 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 sketch. The relationship between Earth and space from a, a bit of a, a higher level. The thing is, right now, both worlds are entirely intertwined, and there's no way you can take them apart any longer. Space has become a truly intimate part of our civilization. It would be you, you, it's entangled with so many things in in our in our world, and of course, we're talking about communication technology, as we all know. You know, that's depending on space. But just even understanding how the world moves and works in terms of, of management of resources like water and forestry and agriculture, um, there's so much that is now fully intertwined. So it's, it's, very, 
it's almost artificial to talk about Earth and space as being opposed and then, you know, mm -hmm. trying to figure out uh, how space can benefit, benefit Earth. Um, space is actually instrumental in taking care of Earth. And I think people sometimes forget that something like climate change is right. actually has been discovered because of space technology. Without space technology, we'd never uh, uh, discovered it or even understood it or even have come up with, with models so we can figure out how to counter it. This is all because of space. So if people are like, we should take our Earth first and space, you know, that maybe we can invest in that later, that doesn't make any sense at all. Um, and also, it's not just a, a false opposition between those two, between Earth and space. It's also a false separation. And that's really a shift. And I think many people are not yet aware of that. Um, in the early days of the space race, space, uh, space race, 50s, 60s, space was still the outer world. It was somewhere far away. It was this, 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 this frontier. Right now, everything between Earth and then, let's say, um, the, the furthest satellites, there's all kinds of technologies present there. And the International Space Station is one of them. There's all kinds of other probes and satellites uh, working there. So it's one, it's, I look at it as really one physical continuum. So it's basically more like the, 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 the shell of human civilization has gradually expanded further and further away of Earth. And within that shell, that is human civilization. So, you know, we, we really need to build a different imaginary about all this. And this is much more useful. Um, so that's just to position how, how I think about Earth and space. Um, and then in terms of, you know, what specific ideas could come back, uh, I'll, I'll just briefly summarize the kind of work that I'm doing at Delft University mm -hmm. of Technology right now. Is So we're working on um, coming up with new concepts for future starships, spaceships that can actually bring humanity to different stars, nearby stars. We're not talking about different galaxies. That's science fiction. That's way too far. But relatively nearby stars that are a few light years away. Technically, this should be feasible. I mean, right now, we still need to develop a lot of the technology, but technically, this is physics. According to physics, this is not impossible. Let's mm. put it this way. Um, and so one of the key features when you're thinking about interstellar travel is that you're dealing with uncertainty. You're dealing with uncertain futures. It's, it's a, a huge difference if you compare this with, for example, the development of the Apollo program going to the moon. Um, it was only Apollo 11 that finally touched the surface of the moon. Those 10 missions before, gradually, one by one, gradually went closer and closer to the moon, but each time came back. And then all the lessons learned, all the risks that people discovered and all the pro potential problems that uh, people discovered were used to optimize the system and then mm -hmm. go back a little further again. This is the gradual development of space technology. With interstellar travel, this is not possible. You can't go like a little interstellar come all the way back to fix a few things in your spaceship, go back. It would take you centuries to get anywhere. So how, on one hand, you have an uncertain future because you can't map the whole trajectory and all the risks of radiation and, and, and particle impacts, for example. Um, so how do you deal with that? You're an engineer, you get the assignment to develop a spaceship, but you don't really know what's going to happen. This seems like, okay, that's that's the end of the, end of the line. This is not going to work. And then biology comes in. Because you could, and that's what we're doing with our team, we're actually developing spaceships that develop and evolve over time. They're not blueprints, they're not like fixed designs that you send out like, you know, anything that is being sent out right now, which is perfectly fine. 
But for, like I said, for interstellar, we need a different approach. These are kind of spaceships that start out with a, a particular basic configuration. And then during the journey, the spaceship 3D prints itself. It's using 3D printing technology that you're, you're, ba you're basically building your hardware along as you go. And moreover, because the structure is modular, you can reshuffle the modules. So you can really change the morphology of the spaceship. So the spaceship can actually, morphologically, it can evolve. And what we use as a resource for the 3D printing, because 3D printing, of course, you need materials to print with, is actually an asteroid. So we're connecting a base, a proto-starship to an asteroid. It starts mining the asteroid, the inside of the asteroid. And then over time, using those mined resources, it prints an architecture that gradually starts uh, growing out of the asteroid. And the front of the asteroid is used as, an, as a shield against impact. So it's kind of a hybrid between an asteroid and a typical a man-made structure, and that, that's the spaceship. And of course, we're not building anything. We're uh, working with computer simulations and simulating different aspects of this, of this concept. Now, the thing is, as an engineer, you can work really hard on building a physical structure that arrives intact at its destination. But if everything that lives inside is dead, then your mission is still a fail. Um, so we, in our computer modeling, we also build in a virtual ecosystem to make sure that the, 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 te the technology and the architecture is doing its job, not, not just from a structural perspective, but also from a, a functional perspective in terms of keeping people and, and biology alive. So that's that's really that's really what we do. And the because this is, this is my current research, and I can talk for hours about this, as you can imagine. <laughs> uh, we can but, make a part two, don't worry, and yeah. a three as well. <laughs> so let, let me summarize maybe the two key key uh, takeaways from, from this kind of research that we can actually apply on many different fields beyond starships. Um, the first one is the ecosystem. The ecosystem that we're using is inspired by an existing regenerative ecosystem that the European Space Agency has been developing over multiple decades. It's called MELISSA. And the MELISSA system is a closed-loop regenerative ecosystem. It doesn't really look like a traditional ecosystem. It looks more like a kind of lab. Um, it basically consists of five compartments. People are one compartment. People are considered as one compartment. And all the waste materials that come out of a human body are gradually broken down through a series of bioreactors with different microorganisms and are gradually turned into nitrates and CO2 for plants. And then the plants provide oxygen and food for the astronauts. So it's a fully closed system where every molecule counts. And it's, it's this perspective that is, is incredibly useful on Earth. It's, a, it's, it's sustainability, but like on steroids. It's mm -hmm. really looking at the world through a molecular lens. Right. And I think that's, for example, a really good, um, a, a good example. It's a good example of how, you know, this kind of ideas can come back to Earth. And then secondly, before uh, I, I wrap up here, um, is that, the whole concept of developing a spaceship that actually evolves and grows is bio-inspired engineering because we're, I'm a developmental biologist and ecologist, um, but this is where my developmental biology background comes in. You know how a, a, a little cluster of cells develops in a complex body into a complex body. I'm using those same insights. And I really believe that part of the engineering for the future of, 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 of civilization in general um, should be bio-inspired and should embrace the concepts of emergence and self-organization. Beautiful. Um, 
a lot of those those topics that that I hear you bring up now, um, you also worked on them in, in your artistic alter ego, I would say. Huh? I mean, um, when I look at Biomod, when I look at Seeker, um, the Biodiversity Tower, there's they're all, as you mentioned, uh, co-creative or participatory uh, projects in which people from all walks of life contribute to whether it's a biological computer or a spaceship for long voyages, whatever. Um, having participated in one of them in, in the most minimal way, to, to say the least, I would almost say that instead of a project to to build these things, the experiences themselves that you create or that you create together with participants are the real vehicles that you're you're building. They are the vehicles of of, of knowledge creation, of sharing, of, of of human engagement. And I think um it's such a with all the art, science and design intertwingled, it, it's such an extremely successful model for nurturing literacy, uh also societal debate on on, on a lot of the topics from biodiversity to food systems to deep space. Um, I mean, for listeners who haven't looked at the wonderful projects that came out of these initiatives, I would urge them to head over to your uh, your website, um, seeds, S-E-A-D-S dot network, uh, Space Ecologies, Art and Design, and check them out. Um, how did these projects originate? Do they fit into a larger plan or would, are they part of, I mean, are they ingredients that you build with gradually uh, towards uh, towards these other projects on, in your more uh, scientific work as well? Yeah, I think I think in the art projects, there is definitely an, 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 an there's a shared interest, of course, between the art and scientific, the artistic and scientific projects, which are also uh, focus points that are way, way more explicit in the artistic projects. And I think the social component mm. is very important in most of these art projects. Um, which at this point I'm not including yet in my scientific work, which doesn't mean I have no interest in this because I would love in the future to start incorporating social components into my uh, scientific work, but that's, you know, not now. I already have enough to explore. Um, <laughs> but back to the art, you're right. I mean, you participated in one of the Seekers, right? Mm -hmm. uh, one of the Seeker projects. Just to summarize really briefly for the audience, Seeker is a, um, a sort of, spaceship starship sculpture project in which with local communities we engage in a dialogue about potential futures of mankind in outer space from a post-planetary perspective and using recycled materials we build mock-ups that are quite extensive and large architectural mock-ups that are actually inhabitable and then we run isolation missions with small crews of people that designed it to test mm. what we build together out of uh, through this, this the conversation um, and so conversation and social dynamics within this co-creation pro process is, is key. And it's actually part of the art, which is always a bit difficult if you show it, because when you show it, people see the artifact that resulted out of all that social dynamic. And I, have, I, I must admit, I don't think I've ever found the perfect way to share the final artwork, because it's, it's like the only way to truly, really appreciate the artwork is by participating. Yeah, and then absolutely. you understand the, the full um, dimensions of the art piece by just looking at the end result. That doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Um, and so what happens is that we try with communities, like for example with Seeker, we try to engage in a dialogue like, okay, how, how would you envision as non-professionals? Because usually 95% of those people are, have nothing to do with space or even 100%. Um, how would you envision mankind's future in space? And specifically addressing 
the fact that they're um, that they're, they, they still have they have a, a different perspective on things in, in comparison to an aerospace engineer. And my, I think my main goal here is um, to diversify futures. Hmm. And I think that's really, and, and I've actually written a, a chapter about, uh, for a book, uh, which is called Diversifying Futures, specifically talking about the Seeker project. And it's like, is it possible that, you know, we, we're actually dealing with path dependency in how things evolve. There are certain steps that have been taken that have taken us in the past that have taken us to the current moment where we are in space exploration. So it looks like space exploration has this one particular way or a few particular ways to evolve to. People like Elon Musk um, and Jeff Bezos, of course, they kind of have disrupted the whole imaginary of space exploration, mm -hmm. which I think is good. There are also some issues there, but it's definitely, it's, it's definitely interesting that they did that. But still, even with those people being active, we still have a very limited set of potential futures that we're developing right now. And so can we take a step back um, and rethink our future in space exploration from very different perspectives, not necessarily strictly from um, an, an, an economic perspective or a, a traditional aerospace uh, perspective? And can we be more inclusive? Um, because actually developing our future in outer space should be an inclusive dialogue mm. nurtured by human civilization as a whole and not just by just a couple of a couple of countries that can afford it and i must say it's difficult and mm. what you really uh, immediately are confronted with and also with it myself it's not like i'm i'm escaping this is you're really constrained by your own time frame you're living it's very difficult to imagine things way beyond your own time frame it's just the human brain is is not capable of making a jump 200 years in the future and making a very accurate um, a drawing of, of how that future would look like. Um, and so what I noticed, for example, in Seeker is that very often um, the group falls back to tropes and archetypes that are actually coming from American science fiction. So there's a huge dominant presence of how we envision our future along American militaristic lines. And people are not always aware of that. I mean, if you ask people to draw a, a spaceship, a starship, they will often come up with something that looks like something that could come out either either uh, out of Star Trek or Star Wars, for example. So there's a very limited imagination. Can we break that up? And that's actually the experiment of Seeker. And I'm saying, like I said, it's not always perfectly successful. We do fall into the traps of some of those cliches. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that's absolutely uh, not just true, but also the, the big struggle also in, in as a foresight practitioner in, in diversifying futures is to not just diversify along cultural lines or tropes or whatever. Um, I mean, for me, literature has always been a, we talked about it with one of our previous guests, um, a major source of inspiration, but you don't need to look only towards, indeed, uh, US science fiction in order to come up with amazing images of, 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 of the future. Um, there's plenty of other ones that didn't even intend to write about the future that offer you uh, fascinating clues. Yeah, and if we, if, if we look at science fiction, it's actually interesting that the diversity of scenarios that you can find in science fiction literature is much wider than what you find in visual culture. But of course, that's for a niche audience. And that's not for mass audiences. The, mass, the masses are much more influenced by things like Star Wars, for example. So these images really shape what people expect from space exploration. So it's kind of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. 
absolutely. Yeah, having, having said that, I think there's there's tremendous, um, I would say even in societal value in in this diversification of, of futures. Um, I always frame it as uh, when you diversify futures, you're actually creating an antidote to the the imagination deficit of of society, mm-hmm. and and we we need more of that. I would say in order to escape the the monocultural way of uh, looking at things, and that doesn't only go for. Uh, as you say, space travel, it also goes for politics, it goes for systems. There's there's plenty of stuff out there that we, where you can apply it to. Um, speaking of, 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 of space, um, you mentioned uh, the artistic projects opening up this, this realm also to a broader audience than normally would be uh, uh, inclined to, to look into these issues. Um, but you, you took it pretty far. You even took one of your uh, artworks up into space, right? Yes. Uh, this is uh, our latest project with the Seeds Collective. The project is called Engines of Eternity. And last year, um, in December, we actually launched our first uh, artwork into space. Um, it's, um, it's a brand new, it's a, like I said, a brand new art piece. It's quite conceptual. But um, the thing is, we were invited by a scientist, a colleague of mine, Karin van Donink, from the University of Namur in Belgium, and she works on a very particular and very interesting organism. It's called uh, a roti- a rotifer, rotifera. Mm-hmm. And these organisms have some unique um, properties. And uh, one of them is, first of all, uh, there's no more males. Evolution has kicked out males. They're all female and they reproduce through cloning. So they copy themselves over endlessly and over and over again. And secondly, what's even more spectacular is that they can actually get, uh, you can dehydrate them or they can get dehydrated. Um, and even in, in, in that dehydrated state, they're extremely resilient. You can radiate, you can irradiate them with proton radiation, for example. Um, you can freeze them. You can do all kinds of things with them. But you could add, after all this, you can add a drop of water, and they will pop back to life very quickly. And the thing is, they have this unique DNA repair. Uh, capacity. That's the essence. That's why they can they can be brought back to life so easily, even after uh, being exposed to all kinds of environmental um, dangerous conditions. And um, so even when their DNA is not fully repaired yet, they're already alive and moving about. It's very, it's almost, it's very strange to imagine, right? Um, now, this DNA repair capacity, there's only a few organisms that are known that have this capacity. Tardigrades are a famous example. They can also get dehydrated, and it's during the dehydration process that the DNA falls apart into, into bits mm-hmm. and pieces, and, and they, can, they can put it back together again. And so the European Space Agency got very interested in this organism to send it to space to see if DNA repair would still happen in space. Because if that's the, if that's the case, we would have a potential, uh, how to put it, solution is maybe a, a, a quick, a, a, a quick um, how to put it, it's maybe a little quick to say that we have a solution for the future of organisms and mankind in space when we understand this, but one of the dangers of organisms in space is that DNA gets badly damaged. Um, if we would understand how DNA can be repaired in space, that might be a way out. So that's kind of one of the interesting aspects of this research. And so these researchers invited us if we wanted to make an artwork inspired by their experiments in space. And as a collective, we got immediately interested not just to make an artwork inspired by art, by science, but to join them. 
-hmm. and to join the experiment. And so we developed um, a conceptual art piece. Uh, we sent a particular code into space along with, um, with, uh, with the organisms. Um, and the idea is that the code, which is basically uh, my fingerprints, a stencil of my fingerprints, uh, the code is being sent to space, it's coming back to Earth, and then this code is being evolved according to the biological response of these organisms. And the code represents a particular shape through uh, parametric modeling. And so you will see, you will see how the, the shape, the parametric shape, is evolving according to the biological response. And so this, this physicality represents what happens in space. It's almost as if space becomes a creative agent and it's really shaping and morphing the artwork. Now, the beautiful thing is that we're talking about three launches. So the artwork is not just shaped by what happened in space, but it's being sent back to space and maybe hopefully a third time. So the artwork is really, truly developing and evolving itself in this physical transition between Earth and space. So it's very different than a lot of other artworks in space that actually are finished artworks that are being sent oh. up in space and being exhibited there. And then either they come back or most of the time they never come back and they're, you know, they're being jettisoned. Mm -hmm. um, but in our case, it's very different. It's, it actually relates to what I talked about earlier. It's this continuum between the surface of Earth and, and everything that is in space that you have to look at as one whole. And it's in this zone between the surface of Earth and deep space that our artwork evolves and, and, and develops itself. Wow. You mentioned before, um, Angelo, when, you, when we look at, uh, at space, for some people, space is, to put it bluntly, is almost an excuse not to take care of this planet. Um, it's like, okay, we just have to move quickly so that we can get out of here when things get nasty and we, uh, we have a, a second home somewhere. Uh, you already mentioned how that is a completely ridiculous concept because of how much we're intertwined. Um, but they, they, there does seem to be some of that pushing us, uh, pushing some of the, the space research as well. How do you look at people that start from, or not just the people, but how do you think about starting from that angle? Like it's our last resort. It's the uh, the escape pod that we're designing. Yeah, honestly, I, I, I totally don't, do not connect with this kind of way of looking at things. Um, I think uh, taking care of Earth is is the is the key to human existence. This will change. This will change, and I can talk about this in, in a bit. Um, but I think um, I mean not that. Yeah, let me clarify this a little bit. Um, being very cynical and developing space exploration as a means to make sure that we won't go down. Um, and then as a result of that, giving up on Earth, I think there's not really many people that will embrace this. I mean, you can criticize Elon Musk's Mars colonization plans, and I definitely have some criticisms there. But Elon Musk, I don't think he will say that, like, Forget about Earth. I mean, no. he loves Earth as much as everyone else does. I mean, it's on the contrary. I would yes, say. yes. All right. So let's not let's not make this into a kind of uh, false kind of, of, no. of opposition there. I don't think that that's really what's happening. I think um, there may be two 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 aspects that I briefly want to touch upon. Uh, the first one is um, we are risking with with of course with with people like Elon Musk and and, and especially Jeff Bezos. Mm. Um, to bring neoliberal capitalism into deep space. 
and to develop human civilization into in deep space along neoliberal capitalist predatory um, lines. And I think that's really a problem. I mean, that's something we need to be we need to be careful about. Even though uh, I must say that Jeff Bezos says that his vision, uh, which is inspired by uh, Gerard O'Neill's um, work uh, from the 70s, building giant colonies in space. His, Jeff Bezos' idea is like, let's build those colonies and let's build heavy industry in space and let's reinvigorate Earth and let's make Earth into a garden again. And, you know, let's move all the industry away. And so Earth can be this, this biological system again, which theoretically sounds wonderful, but practically, yeah, we're still very far away from this, of course. Uh, so he tries to put some some ecological sensitivity in there, of course. Um, but what's what I'm what I'm actually interested in is in the post-planetary stage of uh, human civilization, which is the next, which is going to be the next stage in in, um, in space exploration. Post-planetary means not like we we give up on planets, not not at all. On the contrary, it's basically a stage of human civilization where people live in different types of constellations throughout the solar system and beyond. And living on the surface of a planet like Earth or Mars is one of the options. But some people might live in giant spaceships like the ones that we are designing in our computer simulations in, in, in Delft. Um, some people might live in a, in a mining colony. There might also be, be other kinds of stations and spaceships around um, different distances from Earth. And it's it's that collective that is humanity. Humanity is really spread out over all these different configurations, and that's why it's post-planetary. And what you can see in some science fiction, like The Expanse, for example, um, is that this will generate, uh, all, this could potentially generate all kinds of problems. And mostly about, uh, we're mostly running the risk of alienating from each other. We're different cultures developing <clears throat> different cultures developing in different locations will start to get alienated from each other, from each other and we lose that sense of, of, of connection. And um, I'm very interested in the stage where people are born in a completely different world than Earth and to see what happens, how they, what happens to them if they would be exposed to Earth. Because one of the theories about uh, our relationship to nature is that it's called biophilia, that mm -hmm. we are hardwired, it's it's encoded in our DNA, that we are attracted to biology. Even a green color makes has a soothing effect. So we are naturally attracted to oceans and to, to forests and to landscapes with nature. And I wonder if you're born on the moon and you grew up on the moon and you go to Earth, if you will have that same sensation or you will actually long for the beautiful gray tones and the dryness of the moon and this will is, is your comfort zone. We don't know yet. Nobody knows. But these are really interesting questions, I think, that will be part of the deep future of mankind. Absolutely. I, th I think it also brings in how crucial some of the, the humanities in terms of scientists to include in this endeavor are. I remember that also from our conversations during your secret experiment here, um, which you said, well, psychologists, sociologists, uh, people from political sciences, everybody should be involved in order to really... Uh, not predict, but anticipate some of those changes and explore some of those changes that might occur uh, in this post-planetary civilization. Exactly. Um, is that also part of your, your, are they also part of your research team in, in, in Delft or how do you connect with those, uh, those domains? 
So I must, I, I totally agree with you when you say that, you know, we need to look at, at uh, the future of mankind and space from a, from a different perspective than just the aerospace engineering perspective. Uh, aerospace engineering is at the heart of everything there. I mean, there is no doubt about it. And the work they do are sometimes works of art. I mean, some of the technology that is up there is just so beautiful, so amazing. Um, but we're at a stage where we're really beyond keeping people alive in a tin can. And so we need to bring in all these other aspects because we're going to go uh, for much longer into space. We're going to go with more people into space. So there's going to be all kinds of social and psychological aspects. We're going to bring biology into space. So suddenly all these other components need to be thought of and need to be reflected upon. Um, and for example, my research uh, on, on the Starship design, um, there at this point, we made a deliberate choice to focus on the interface between technology and biology. In the very beginning of the project, um, we also had a social component, but things became just too complex. And we decided, <laughs> okay, let's just start with the interfacing of technology and biology mm -hmm. along the lines that I just explained, mm -hmm. bio-inspired engineering, circular food systems. And once we have some insights there and some models there, we can we can we can incorporate uh, social components as well. But it's definitely on my radar. Um, but it's just a choice to uh, to focus. Yeah, because it's 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 interesting how you also mentioned earlier on in our conversation that you said, well, uh, we should see this as a much more um, inclusive challenge and, and endeavor uh, involving people from other cultures beyond also oh, the, the few countries that that can afford to to spend time and money on on this um you could even uh hearing you talk about biophilia etc expand it and say well maybe we should leave behind some of our anthropocentric views as well and we we're doing actually some more exploratory projects at the moment in which we say okay how much even political agency um, can we um, can we see or, or find or or stimulate in in uh, the world beyond the human? Uh, how can we have plants and, and animals um, or, or artificial intelligences contribute just as much at at these scales? Um, are those questions that are also being tackled? Like like when you're dealing with these, is it not just about keeping humans alive or? organisms but how can there i mean you mentioned the rotifera uh also as as a source of inspiration but it's you could also say um it's an we'll still look at it from an instrumentalization point of view uh, that we say okay how can we appropriate nature to to our benefit or to our uh, purposes whereas the other way around might i mean interstellar travel might also require us to make sure that we do the best as we can, uh, we as humans, for the other species that we have to carry along. It's not just about caring for our garden and our food provision. It's uh, perhaps even more than that. Yeah, it's a difficult question. And once again, this was also a, a topic of interest at the beginning of our Starship research. And it's definitely still uh, on my mind. I, I came up with the idea of a round table where all these organisms and entities could kind of negotiate. Mm -hmm. But when you're starting to talk about operational aspects and making sure there is enough oxygen for people to breathe and they have foods and nutrients to survive. Um, well, you could allow the bacteria to do whatever they want. Um, like in Biosphere 2, for example, you had ants and cockroaches kind of running over the place. But my focus is, of course, to first and foremost, make sure that people stay alive 
in these systems. There will be a care for nature because they're very dependent on that nature. The problem is really how can you build a self-balancing diverse system? And this is really tricky. This is really this is really at the heart of self-organization. Even if you put together like a hundred species of biological organisms, a few humans and some artificial intelligence, you can't just expect them to find a balance where there is a spot for everyone. What easily happens is that one or two will take over, dominate everything, and all the rest dies off. And honestly, because um, I was forced because of the computer modeling to start thinking about molecules and provisions and needs and survival, I had to, yeah, I had to be less philosophical about this. So it's really a friction between the two. On one hand, I'm very interested in the in the ethical debate. On the other hand, I'm thinking from a very operational perspective through my computer models, and I haven't been able to um, to connect both yet. So we'll see what happens in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you already mentioned. I mean, this this also touches upon that uh, the aspect of our conversation where you say, okay, everything that has to do with whether it's aerospace engineering, anything that has to do with space, it's it's very much focused on. Uh, efficiency in a, in a certain way like 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 a real a purification not just of the idea or the mental concepts but also of the the engineering the physical uh, 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 the physicality of the things that you that you create um, with with some of your predecessors in this podcast with a lot of times the topic came up uh, there seems to be almost a, an infatuation at a societal level with everything that has to do with efficiency and I would almost call it solutionism uh, not to say that solutions aren't necessary, but sometimes they stand in the way of asking the right questions. Which questions do you think that are, are relevant to ask that might set us on a path towards a, a better a better future? The questions that deserve more attention than the ones that we're asking now, perhaps in in search for solutions. Well, it touches upon, of course, the idea of of the on the concept of sustainability. Um, if you're building a concept for a uh, a starship, a generation starship, um, you take a limited supply with you. Like I said, we're transforming asteroids into space architecture. The asteroid is your limited resource. That's what you have. You will do every effort to maintain every molecule you, 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 you can extract and use to turn into a plant or a bacteria or to, into architecture. Um, so everything becomes extremely valuable. In this way, thinking about starships, about generation starships, is really a beautiful metaphor to rethink the world from a very radical perspective, from a molecular perspective. So yes, we're dealing with efficiency, but also we're dealing with extreme sustainability, which I think is not such a bad idea. Valuing every molecule for what it is, is a, a pretty interesting uh, perspective. Um, the other thing that you there, there's all there might be some confusion here about uh, efficiency, optimization, and resilient systems. An optimized system might give you the highest efficiency, but is rarely a resilient system. What you have to avoid in the in this situation, the starship that we're working on, where you're dealing with deep uncertainty sometimes or levels of uncertainty is you do not want an optimized system because an optimized system can only operate really well within a very narrow set of specific boundaries. You right? want redundancy and diversity you as want, well. You want redundancy and you basically want some bleed. Mm. 
So you, you, you basically want a system that is not fully optimized and, you want, and that, that will give you the edge and that will give you enough flexibility to move in one direction or the other. So um, the obsession with optimization might actually be a dead end in, in after all. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's a recurring, uh, recurring topic, I would say. Um, Angelo, working with people from from all over the world because you brought so many of your projects uh, around the around the globe. Um, do you see patterns or of let's say more fruitful soil for certain ideas and, and approaches to to shape this better future? Or is it truly a global distributed age we're living in? Um, I mean, working with people from different cultures with different uh, mindsets, worldviews, um, different approaches. I would say it, it, it's such a an enrichment. It's also difficult sometimes, um, but there must be something uh, that attracted you in it as well. I mean, seeing that you're continuing your tours uh, with the projects, do you see some patterns that you say, "Well, that would, if that idea that we developed in Africa or in Indonesia would would just take off, that that would really mean a world of difference to to the rest of us." It's, it's really difficult to generalize. And I, I have worked in several cultures, but I, I, I feel that I'm still lacking a lot of experience to be able to really do a global comparison here. In terms of the impact of the different cultures that I've been working in, it's basically about bias. And for example, what struck me in America when I was working there on Biomod, the Biomod project, where we combined computers and ecosystems, we built living ecosystems inside recycled computer networks, um, that a lot of the women there would, when they heard about the project, would immediately um, withdraw. It would be like, yeah, but that's computer stuff. It's for geeks. It's for guys. And I was, I was quite struck by this, that um, there was this very particular gender-based uh, response. And when I was doing the same project, for example, in Southeast Asia, at least half, or in Taiwan, more than half of the crew would be female. And there would be absolutely no statement about, you know, this is for, for men or for women. It would be completely different. Um, of course, um, if, if, if the, the, the types of people that are, are already self-selecting based on these values that are embedded in that society, if that already leads to a particular group of people working with you to redesign the future, of course, the outcome is already going to be quite different. So sometimes it's quite difficult to disentangle um, whether the differences in the results are due to, to particular different ways of looking at the future or it's a consequence of something like this where people, people are already pre-selecting because of other kind of uh, ideas about uh, collaborating and, and, and the kind of things they can contribute to. You talked before about the um, uh, some countries being involved. I remember reading an article a few, uh, well, a while ago, I would say, is that some countries uh, seem to focus on um, really capitalizing on the, on the space, the, the new space age. I mean, Luxembourg being one of them. Like it's 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 political strategy, it's economic strategy to say, listen, if you want to start something that has to do with space, you do it here. Do we give you the best ecosystem in terms of bringing in the money, helping you set up things in a legal framework, etc. This is the place where you need to be. Uh, do you think that's that's a um, a working strategy? Is it something that? Um, uh, that 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 benefits the whole the whole mission, I would say, or or is it something that distracts uh, from uh, from the real intentions? You see, it's it's more fat, an economic uh, fad uh, rather than a because most of the companies are, from what I understood, are actually 
And some of the asteroid mining companies are actually have their base uh, at least legally uh, on paper in, in, in Luxembourg. Is that yeah. is that a, a geopolitical strategy? What, what is it? It's going to happen and it's already happening. There is a new space economy in full development. Uh, COVID-19 now definitely has given it a dent. Um, there's quite some launches that have been delayed and might even be get might be might be cancelled, but there is no doubt about it. There is a, a new kind of space economy uh, developing, and it's basically um, the, the idea of this new space economy is that um, services are being offered to people on Earth, all kinds of services where you either you can send your own experiment to space, but you don't have to go through all the traditional. The, you don't have to go through the traditional trajectory of working with the National Space Agency, like NASA, for example, or, or ESA, um, and um, and other kinds of services where you know you, you have uh, Earth observation, but it's directly accessible by you through your laptop and stuff like that. I mean, this is possible now because of different reasons: because the mark, the launch market opened up, because of miniaturization of technology, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's a kind of new ecosystem of um, economic um, activities that is that is opening up. And it's not going to stop. This is going to keep on developing. Now, asteroid mining, that is still, you know, a little bit further ahead. There is nobody who has any viable technology right now. And I think quite a few of those asteroid uh, mining companies are, are have shut down again. Mm-hmm. Um, but it will be part of the future. The interesting thing is that a lot of banking institutions are very interested in asteroids because they're so rich in valuable materials. It's quite interesting that a bank that represents a place where gold is stored uh, is also interested in, the st- in, in, in asteroids, which are sometimes storing all these valuable metals. So it's, it's not a coincidence, of course. Um, so yes, Luxembourg is one of the players there. Um, I heard, for example, at a certain point, Goldman Sachs was sending around a ladder drawing attention to the future of asteroid mining. This would be a really interesting topic to keep an eye on and possibly to invest in. So once again, you can feel the interest of the of the current capitalist system uh, being interested in, in, in those things. And honestly, it's difficult to gauge what the effect will be because imagine if um, such wealth these, some of these asteroids are generally like the, the money you could potentially make with the, the metals that are inside such, a, such an asteroid are unheard of in human history. But they could also destabilize the markets on Earth, of course. If you suddenly bring in such a huge amount of valuable materials, they might disturb the whole, the whole, the whole economy on Earth. Uh, moreover, you get a very interesting shift in, in human history because up to now, every single country built its wealth based on what accidentally was geologically given to them. What's, you know, what was accidentally beneath their feet, like in Saudi Arabia, they had mm-hmm. oil, so they built this whole uh, wealth around it. But, you know, they never, they had never any stake in this. And suddenly, countries like Luxembourg, which are super tiny, one of the smallest countries on the planet, they can leave Earth and they can reposition their territory to space and they can find wealth there and develop themselves there. So this will also be a completely, uh, yeah, I must say that geopolitically, this will uh, unbalance things as never before. And this is all going to happen in the future, uh, no matter, you know, how we look at it. As, as, as you're telling this story, I'm actually looking at the cover of a, a Belgian comic, uh, Dallas Bar, which actually, uh, from Mark Van Oppen, uh, Marvano, 
which actually deals with this whole issue of how it how destabilizing it can be, uh, oh, really? and how people try to to extend their lives uh, at uh, <laughs> infinitely in order to be able to make the most out of the wealth they've uh, generated. Uh, so it's um, it's a circular economy in a different in a different sense. Mm -hmm. Angelo, thank you so much for this. Um, well, inspiring talk to say the least. Uh, like I said, it's probably part one of a longer conversation, uh, which I'm looking forward to, to have with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to yet another episode of Reflections. If you enjoy our podcast, we would love it if you would head over to Apple Podcasts and rate us. And to continue the conversation, feel free to get in touch through Twitter at Pantopinik, P-A-N-T-O-P-I-N-I-K. And you can find Pantopicon, our foresight and design studio, making this podcast possible at Pantopicon, B-E, P-A-N-T-O-P-I-C-O-N, B-E. -E.